Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, it's our second show in a special series dedicated to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. April 4th marks the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. In this year-long series, we'll be discussing how scholars, admirers, and activists around the country and the world are reflecting and acting on the legacy of Reverend King five decades after his death. This episode, we will focus on economic justice. We begin with Dr. King's final crusade, the Poor People's Campaign. A national effort is reigniting King's moral movement. Later in the show, economic justice in Memphis, Tennessee, 50 years after the influential sanitation workers' strike. We are the poorest large metropolitan area in the country. The median wage for white people in Shelby County is 71000 And for African Americans, the median wage in Shelby County is 35000 So the disparities are there. In the city where King was killed particularly, I would have hoped we were doing better, but we're not. And I think that it's really a challenge to the employers and even government officials on what kind of Memphis they want to see. How can Memphis and the United States work toward fulfilling Dr. King's mission of economic equality and opportunity for all? But first, joining me in the studio, Savina Martin, co-chair of the Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign and a key leader of the former National Union of the Homeless. Welcome, Savina. Thank you. Glad to have you. And June Cooper, executive director of the anti-poverty nonprofit organization City Mission and theologian in the city at Old South Church in Boston. Hello, June. Hi. I'm glad to have both of you. So a little context is required here. The Poor People's Campaign was Dr. King's last campaign. Lots of people may not have heard about it because his assassination took a lot of emphasis away from that campaign. But in fact, he was working on this movement to pay attention to poverty and how it was impacting people in the last years of his life. And he came to Memphis to the sanitation workers, actually, because he thought that their cause was emblematic of exactly what the mission of the Poor People's Campaign was all about. So now we're talking about a national Poor People's Campaign, of which you two are a part of. But before we hear from the both of you, Let's listen to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech from The Three Evils of Society. It was delivered at the National Conference on New Politics, August 31st, 1967. We must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved 
without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. So that was Reverend King. That was a year before his assassination, as I said, working on this Poor People's Campaign. Savina, why now a reigniting of that campaign? Well, over the past five decades, we're talking about 50 years after the assassination of Dr. King, we are seeing the same conditions that he was speaking of that have just deteriorated even more. I think at that point during his speech, he was connecting the dots. He was interlocking and intersecting that. Everything was interconnected with poverty, especially around his quest for civil rights. I believe that he had moved from the thought of civil rights into human rights. So now we know that we must continue to resurrect what was his uh, dream in uh, not a moment, but a movement. So 50 years after the assassination of Dr. King, we are building a long-term, hopefully protracted and sustained movement from the bottom up to address uh, the moral inequities in this country. June Cooper, would you agree with that? Absolutely. On the front lines that I work on, at City Mission, we are very concerned about issues of poverty. That's part of our vision is to eradicate and be a catalyst for eradicating poverty. But our particular focus these days is on preventing family homelessness. We know that over 50% of the people that live in Boston uh, make less than 35000 a year. And uh, to afford a two-bedroom apartment, you have to make about $26 an hour. So we are seeing that economic injustice every day when we have families and moms. We go down to the Boston Housing Court. People are unable to meet all their financial responsibilities. Transportation in the city has gone up. Uh, Rents are high. So that people are are struggling. And as uh, Savina says, we're back where we were 50 years ago, if not worse. So... The local Poor People's Campaign is a part of the national one, which is being guided by the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris of an organization called Keros, and also by Reverend William Barber, and his organization is called Repairers of the Breach. And both of them are nonpartisan organizations, and Repairers of the Breach has a particular focus on moral a moral agenda in this framework. I wanted to let everybody get a listen to both of them as they talk at a mass meeting in Boston about the aims of the Poor People's Campaign today. We are going to change the moral narrative in this country. We are going to build power in our communities, and we are going to build a nonviolent, multi-generational, intergenerational, interfaith army of the poor. We're trying to do is not just about black. It's about the reality that if you're black and poor and can't pay your light bill, and if you're white and poor and you can't pay your light bill, and you're Latino and poor and can't pay your light bill, and you're Asian and poor and you can't pay your light bill, or you're First Native and can't pay your light bill, the thing is we're all black in the dark, so we better figure out how to come together and, and get the lights turned on. Both of those statements were pretty powerful, and both of you actually work in social justice arenas. But I wonder why this campaign particularly might have spoken to you in this moment. I mean, we know that you're already busy doing social justice work. So to add to this or to be a part of this is another task. Why, June, for you? (laughs) 
Well, I heard uh, Dr. Barber speak about four years ago when he came to Andover Newton Theological School. And um, being a, a minister and and the work that I do, it was so fascinating. It was like Dr. King speaking again. And um, Dr. Barber was able to tell us that we need to read the Bible or our sacred texts, whatever that might be, along with the Constitution. So he talked about this thing called the moral imperative and the need for our country, which has become very mean-spirited when we take health care away or when we take housing or when we talk about taking away food stamps and giving people food in a box. Dr. Barber was able to put it all together for me. So I have been following him since that time and always wanted to be in the room with him. And one of the best compliments I ever got in my life was when he looked at me when I was at one of his trainings and he said, you look like a troublemaker. (laughs) And I said, yes, indeed, I'm a troublemaker for justice because I really, this is in my bones, it's in my blood. I'm a child of the 60s. I was too young to go out or to to get the bus down to the poor people's campaign when it was down in Washington, the original one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what, this is my time to jump in and make a difference. And Savina Martin, you have a whole history of training. I mean, you're a veteran. You come from a place where training is important. And we should mention that a part of this movement that's building is that people are in trainings. So I know that part of it you already know. But why did it appeal to you in this moment? Well, I say that we all evolve, right? And there are so many evolutionary forces that connect with different individual factors that influence influence us to a certain thing or place. So over the years, yes, I've always been in the trenches. Um, I say, yes, I'm a troublemaker, just like June. I can identify as a radical, I would say, a revolutionary in terms of peace and nonviolence, right? And understanding that from growing up and being displaced and living in a housing projects and witnessing my mother looking for my brothers during the old campaign, in particular when Dr. King was assassinated. And I believe that that's what sparked the uh, passion inside of me. And 20 years later, I was recognized in Boston and actually for organizing with the National Union of the Homeless and taking over abandoned property. So, you know, I was recognized with the um, Dr. King Drum Major for Justice Award. And I love Dr. King. I love what he stood for. So it wasn't hard for me to get involved. Eventually, over the years, I was nominated at Union Theological Seminary as a poverty scholar. And we evolved into the Poverty Initiative Project. And then from there, in 2013, we launched the Cairo Center. Mm. And I sat on a panel with Dr. Barber and spoke about homelessness. So it was just a natural Mm -hmm. uh, evolving. Um, I just moved back to Massachusetts two years ago. I've been in San Diego, California, but never stopped the work. And I was asked to take the wheel. And uh, when you're called, just like when I'm deployed, when you're deployed in the military, when you're called for duty, you stand up. Whether or not you're tired, you just stand up. So here's a question to both of you. So we're in a time where it seems, and maybe it's just because I'm in this time, and there may be scholars listening right now saying, no, it's cyclical and it's been here before. But it seems like we are worshiping wealth in ways at least I haven't seen in the last few years. So, and I mean, I'm using worship deliberately in this case. It is celebrated. And 
as many people have pointed out, during the last election season, the word poverty was never used once in all of the public debates. So we seem to be very far from thinking about issues of poverty, whether they realize themselves, June, in a housing crisis or the light bill, as Reverend Barber has put it. So how does a people's campaign now get folks other than yourselves already committed to, you know, join in and recognize what the real issues are? I think many people are starting to see particularly that elusive middle class is disappearing, particularly when our kids get out of college and they're drowning in debt uh, for student loans. Wages over the past 30 years have not kept up with the cost of living in this country. And I think that as people start to wake up to that reality, they start to look around and see, well, it's not just me, it's my neighbor, it's my kids. And so I think people want to begin to see that we can come together around all of the, the lines that we draw to keep us from being apart, whether we're gay or straight or black or white. As Dr. Barber says, when that light bill goes off, mm. when the lights are off, the lights are off. Mm. And as we see that we have um, a disparity, particularly we have 1% of our population owning about uh, 80 to 90% of the wealth. Well, there's a lot of people who don't have very much at all. Savina, how would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say... Uh, across this country that, and I'm going to just read this, mm -hmm. that the U.S. economy has grown more than 18 times in the past 50 years, you know, and, and from 1973 to 2016, productivity went up 73.7 percent, uh, but hourly compensation only went up about 12.3, and then beginning in the 1970, wages for the bottom 80 percent of non-supervisory workers have largely remained stagnant. Now, any time in this country where you can see these broad wealth disparities, and on the bottom you have folks across this country living in subway stations and on grates and, and entire intact families living in pup tents. I've traveled all over the country. Take, for instance, San Diego, California. Entire families in pup tents living on uh, full blocks on the street. Something is wrong. Something is wrong when there's not a, enough housing, but there's enough funds and, mm -hmm. and, and money to, for these developers to build 170-story condominiums and wealthy corporations are having these bonuses that are just unbelievable. I mean, something's wrong in this country, and people are feeling that. Mm. And they're anxious, they're also motivated, and they're excited to come on board, get out of those silos, uh, the, the activists and the clergy. and Everybody's ready to get out of those silos and to come on board. So far, we have 41 states, that's including Washington, D.C., on board coming this spring and ready to take uh, action. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Savina Martin. You just heard her. She's co-chair of the Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign. And June Cooper, executive director of City Mission and theologian at Old South Church here in Boston. We're discussing Dr. Martin Luther King's final endeavor, the Poor People's Campaign, and how activists nationwide are reviving the effort 50 years after his death. June, you wanted to add. Sure. I just wanted to add about how in our world that poverty and on many levels 
appears to be invisible. Mm. That family homelessness, as we come to understand, it doesn't look like individual homelessness. But I believe that this campaign is going to make what is invisible visible because we are reaching into organizations uh, that have been working on these issues for many years to say that, you know, we need to come together. Housing activists, fight for 15 people uh, with jobs, economic justice things, so that this campaign is going to catalyze and, again, bring out um, what has been invisible right under our right under the radar. Mm-hmm. When Reverend Barber was here speaking at a mass meeting for the National Poor People's Campaign, he discussed the mission of the campaign. He wanted to make it clear that this was nonpartisan. We must have a movement designed to change the narrative and to cause America to cause America to talk about what she doesn't want to talk about and to face what she does not want to face. And this is not about saving the Democratic Party or saving the Republican Party. It's about saving the very soul and heart of this democracy. That is the question before us. Now, the reason I brought that up, that point up, Savina, is because uh, Reverend Barber has been in b- before, as, as well as Dr. Liz Theo Harris, in a number of other campaigns. And some people may take his work to be particularly focused. But in this campaign, all in is what he's looking for and really a unity of purpose focused on poverty, period. So now you actually, this is not some sort of vague thing coming together. You've pointed out there's 41 states, including Washington, D.C. involved, and there's a concentrated plan, 40 Days of Action. Please explain to me what 40 Days of Action is all about, what, what, what's going to happen there. So the new Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is organizing faith, clergy, activists, educators all across this country to shift the moral narrative. Uh, we launched uh, in December 4, on December 4, 2017. That was just like a call to action. So now we're heading into beginning May 13th until June 21st, what is called 40 Days of Nonviolent Moral Fusion Direct Action. We're beginning on Mother's Day, the birthing, ending June 21st with the summer solstice, the light, so birth and light, moral fusion power, because we're building power from the, from the bottom up. And I say that to say, when you have 40 states across the country simultaneously for six weeks on Mondays doing an action, that is building power. And it's not like we have to, just like uh, Reverend Barber says, we don't have to be loud and wrong. Even if we have 10 people at those rallies, we're boosting that and shifting that moral narrative just by 41 states participating. Now, each state for those 40 days are supposed to uh, rally 1,000 people through pledge card signings. Massachusetts has over 1,300 pledge card signers. Uh, social media. We have a Facebook page um, and signing up. In June, we'll talk about heading into our mass meeting. But people are on board for these 40 days, and there'll be a different theme uh, each week. June, so talk about it. So next week, we have our first mass meeting, which is a statewide meeting inviting people uh, from Springfield, from the Cape, 
from Lowell and Lawrence to come to Boston. National leaders will be here uh, to talk about the campaign. And uh, we really view it as a teach-in, as our first really public uh, meeting to explain what the campaign is, to explain how you can get involved, um, and really to rev people up. I mean, we're going to be having some music. We're going to have some um, some dancing. Uh, we're going to hear from people who are impacted by these issues of poverty and social injustice. And so it's a two-hour event. We're hoping that um, people will come and learn about um, the training for our um, civil disobedience work um, and we'll sign up and take that training and um, it really we see it as a way to continue to build the campaign. I've been impressed by the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. That's Reverend Liz uh, Theo Harris's organization has put together some videos. And in one of them, uh, this is an episode three of, of a series called America Will Be, there is a, a rabbi, Jonah Pesner, who is speaking to a group of faith leaders. And I thought this was interesting because they're really talking about a coming together of a lot of different groups. Let's hear from Rabbi Jonah Pesner. Everybody say he nanny. He nanny. That means here I am. Everybody say here I am. Here I am. When you called us, the Reformed Jews, to North Carolina, Reverend Barber, what did we say? He nanny. He nanny. When Muslims and Christians and Jews, when leaders and clergy come together with the poor and with the marginalized, that's where we get the strength of God. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty exciting. I wonder if... Um, if you feel that the timing of this uh, couldn't be better in that right now a nation has seen a group of young people stir up some passion. I'm talking about the Parkland, Florida survivors. And that's activism right there in front of you. Different issue, but they've come together and they've brought others with them. So are we as a nation a little readier to hear from folks who are very expressive in their commitment about making change, June? Absolutely. Absolutely. Last um, January was the beginning when we had the Women's March Mm -hmm. here in Boston, and you know how many people turned out for that locally, but even nationally. And since then, it's been a series of, of events that has caused us to take to the streets and I think what we're starting to realize that the very um, essence of democracy, where people are have a right to have a voice, that's what activism is about. It's putting on your shoes and getting out there and saying, we have a voice, we have an issue, and we're, we're bringing it to the public square for dialogue, for debate, maybe for, res- for resolution. We want all this to be in a nonviolent way, but it is time. I think we've been sleeping much too long. In the beginning of the sermon that Dr. King delivered at the National Cathedral, his last sermon uh, before he was assassinated, he tells the story of Rip Van Winkle who went up the hill. And at the time when he went up the hill, the sign for uh, King George III was there. When Rip Van Winkle came down, a George Washington sign was there. And so the title of that sermon is called Staying Awake During a Great Revolution. Mm. So um, I think people are um, beginning to realize that a revolution has been going on. Mm. And I think we are starting to wake up to the reality that our very lives are threatened if we begin to realize that a rising tide lifts all boats. 
Savina, what are you hearing um, as as you all have been organizing and training and gathering and making people aware of the of the National Poor People's Campaign? Well, I can ditto to what Reverend June is saying. There is in this country a dying soul, that if if you will, of uh, democracy we see in some respects perhaps already being dismantled in some ways, and people uh, taken to the streets uh, advocating for change. People are activated. But it's also a time, uh, it, spiritually that I could say uh, that it's a prophetic time, it is also a time uh, of a quiet building, too, because we have been activated going home uh, after a rally and just kind of figuring out what's going to happen now. But the, what's different with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, we are dead set on educating folks mm. so that they can intersect, interlock, and get in step, one sound, one mind, right, towards uh, understanding uh, the goals of um, uh, and the objectives to our organizing and what impact does it have. This is why the uh, Center for Institute uh, for, uh, Studies, uh, Policy Studies, is getting ready to release the second part of what is called the Souls of Poor Folk, hmm. 50 years after the assassination of Dr. King. And what they have done for us and are going to continue to do with facts, face, and figures are the impacted stories of this country. It's the proof that people are sick and tired, if I could use that phrase, mm. of being sick and tired. <laughs> mm -hmm. But to understand that there's stories of not even having health care or w watching their children die because they couldn't get a certain part of their Medicare okayed is, is totally wrong. It's morally wrong. Mm. And if we can understand that together we are here to shift that moral narrative. You know, the states make these horrible, distorted um they are driving the narrative. And mm -hmm. if we can, even in these 40 days, drive that narrative, that's the beginning of change today. So I'm hearing that, you know, it's it's From a force her. to be reckoned with. It's a new and unsettling time. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Savina Martin of the Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign and June Cooper of Old South Church and City Mission. We're talking about Dr. Martin Luther King's push for economic justice through his Poor People's Campaign. So a couple of things. I have always focused on the um, Bible verse that begins, uh, the poor will always be with us. And, you know, that's sort of where I stopped thinking, well, you know, a lot of people use that to say, why are you struggling? Because they're always going to be with you. But then, you know, I went and looked at the text, Reverend, and, and in Deuteronomy 15, 11, the rest of it says, therefore, I command you, you shall open wider your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So the first part is just a statement of fact. And the last part is an action request. Am I reading it right? I think you are absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to call you theologian. You are a theologian. We all are when we, when we, uh, interrogate our, uh, the text we're, we're from our tradition. And I think um, as Dr. Barber and uh, Dr. Theo Harris has put all this together, it has uh, really reignited the notion that people of faith have a serious role that they can play in this. But it says um, to me that, you know, you're supposed to be doing something. You're supposed to be active. We're <laughs> supposed to be in the public square. Uh, oftentimes in our congregations, and I can speak to the Protestant side of this, people have been uh, too comfortable, and we need to be afflicted 
um, in a way that that helps us to see that this is part of who we are as Christians, and this is who we are called to be. And uh, this is just not with Christianity, but we see through all the sacred texts that there is a requirement. Uh, if we go back to Micah, what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, with our God? If we look at Muslim texts, we see it there as well. So that um, I think people are excited about ways that we can work in uh, it with interfaith um, communities uh, to come together. We're also talking to humanists who have a, a role in this as well. Um, that are not cons- people of faith, but but people yeah, who are people, talking about mm-hmm, good works, exactly, and good, good deeds exactly. done by folk who mm-hmm. care. Yes, let me say this because I'd be remiss if not pointing out that uh, Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign did not end where he wanted to end. Uh, a lot of it obviously was derailed by his assassination. But what do you say to people who say, "Well, you know, that one didn't really work, and here you all are reviving it. Um, how can you make this be something that?" is meaningful and um, actually is successful. And I guess for that matter, how would you measure success? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Savina? I, I want to use the word in the hope of it all, mm. right? In the hope of it all. Because, again, the reality is we don't know what's going to happen. This piece has never d- been done before. Um, and we're taking the time to do a slow building. But it's uh, this train has taken off even unto itself. Right, uh, it's moving rapidly across the country, and at the end of those, at the end of the uh, the forty days, we will be nationwide uh, taking uh, caravan rides down to Washington D.C., and there'll be a, a week long uh, uh, program of different activities, and we will talk about where do we go from here. Right, we'll continue the actions, but we still we never know, and so in the hope of it all. We uh, trust that uh, as we push this moral narrative, it won't be easy. You know, it's just like the 50 years uh, we had to wait with that delay. So success is really, as you're saying, success is uh, stirring hope in people. I believe so. Mm -hmm. Okay. And June, how would you answer that? I, um, I think about Abraham Herschel, who marched alongside of Dr. King, um, I think it was over the bridge, the Selma Bridge, mm-hmm. in that in that last in that campaign when they finally made it over, and he used to oftentimes say, "When my when I was walking, I felt like my feet were praying," and I think that's how this is. Um, this this current poor people's movement has to certainly be grounded in faith and grounded in prayer. Those people, our ancestors and family members that were out there walking fifty years or. Uh, you know, maybe 60 years, and here we come along, and can we do any any less than put our shoes on and go out with faith and with prayer in our heart and on our souls, literally on our souls, to see what can happen uh, because the times are calling for something to happen. Well, I thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Savina Martin is a co-chair of the Massachusetts Poor People's Campaign and a key leader of the former National Union of the Homeless. And June Cooper is the executive director of City Mission and theologian in the city at Old South Church in Boston. Coming up, Martin Luther King believed the struggle of Memphis's sanitation workers for higher wages and safer working conditions illustrated the economic inequality and the mission of his Poor People's Campaign. 
50 years after his death, has the city of Memphis realized King's hope for the workers of the southern city. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Well, I went down to the landlord's house and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took it back, took back my humanity. Oh, I went down to the landlord's house and I took back what he stole from me. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is a special episode of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, our second hour-long show dedicated to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the legacy he left behind 50 years after his assassination. This episode, we're focusing on his mission of economic justice. In 1968, Dr. King spent his last weeks supporting Memphis sanitation workers who were striking for better wages and safer working conditions, protests illustrated by the iconic I Am a Man sign. The laborers negotiated higher wages after the strike was done, but did these protests make lasting change in Memphis? Joining me from the studios of WKNO in Memphis, Tennessee, Wendy Thomas, award-winning journalist and creator of MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism, a nonprofit reporting project on economic justice. Hello, Wendy. Hello. How are you, Callie? I'm fine. Glad to have you. And also with me, Elena De La Vega, Assistant Professor of Social Work at the University of Memphis. Professor De La Vega specializes in the study of poverty. Welcome, Elena. And I am delighted to be here. Thank you. Let's dive right in because I have to always remind people that a lot of folks didn't know that the Reverend King's focus had shifted from desegregating lunch counters to building economic equity for African Americans. He recognized that the disparity was so great And he was calling for what he described as economic justice, a leveling of the economic playing field, a way of stabilizing millions of poor people. And in many ways, the sanitation workers were really emblematic of just the new direction he was taking. So I wanted us to first listen to a clip from Dr. Martin Luther King's speech to the Memphis sanitation workers on March 18, 1968. But let me say to you tonight, that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Now, Professor Elena De La Vega of the University of Memphis, a lot of people could hear that, and if you didn't know it was Martin Luther King in 1968, it sounds like 
so many things going on today as if he were speaking words that apply to many of the economic situations that folks are protesting right now. But I wanted you to begin by putting in context where Memphis is in terms of the economy. What is the state of poverty in Memphis right now? We are the poorest large metropolitan area in the country. And we also experience tremendous disparities between African-Americans and whites. Um, Just to contextualize this, the median wage for white people in Shelby County is much larger than for even white people in the rest of the nation. So average in the nation is 57,000. In Shelby County, it is 71,000 for whites. And for African Americans, the median wage in Shelby County is 35000 So it's half. The disparities are there. And this is not because of a lack of education. There have been education gains for African Americans in the order of 1,500%. So tremendous gains, tremendous effort by the African American community in educating themselves. But yet, the wages are half. And we've seen these remain pretty stagnant for the past 50 years. So really what you're saying is not much has changed from 50 years ago. Not much has changed in terms of wages. I think that we have to recognize the efforts that the African-American community has been making in terms of education and in terms of taking advantage of the opportunities that were truly available to them. So I think it's very important that we make that clarification because we tend in this country to blame the poor for their poverty, Mm. and we tend to blame people for their low wages. And in this case, I don't think it's justifiable. I don't think it's justifiable in any case, but particularly not in this case. That's my guest, Professor Elena De La Vega of the University of Memphis. Now, turning to you, Wendy Thomas, you spent a year looking at what exactly does the economic disparity look like on the ground in Memphis right now. And first, let's get on the table. What inspired you to do this project? Yeah, so I grew up in Memphis, and I've been a journalist here for the past 14 years now. Um, And prior to starting this project, I was um, the Metro columnist at the Commercial Appeal, the daily paper here in Memphis. And I coordinated the paper's coverage of the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. So I've been thinking um, since then, how could we mark the 50th anniversary of his death? And if you know what King came to Memphis for and you understand his focus on the Poor People's Campaign toward the last years of his life, then you know you can't talk about this moment without talking about jobs and wages and workers. That's why he was here. And you have to address that. Otherwise, you're just engaging in meaningless commemorations and celebrations that aren't warranted. And again, this is the 50th anniversary of his death, not his birth. So that has other implications as well. One of the stories that you reported, because there's a number of stories on your website, that's MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism. You put together a survey, sent it out to 25 of Memphis's largest employers. More than 150,000 employees would be involved in this. Ten questions. And what were you trying to find out from this survey about where wages, where workers were at this point? Right. So we developed this survey in conjunction with some leading policy organizations that study economic justice and um, some HR professionals to make sure we were 
you know, creating a survey that companies could answer. And essentially we wanted to know, do they pay workers enough to live on? And so we measured that using the MIT living wage calculator, which says for a single adult with no children living in the Memphis metro area, they'd need to make ten seventy-five an hour to um, meet their very basic expenses. So this isn't savings, this isn't entertainment, um, this assumes you're working full-time. So you'd need ten seventy-five an hour. And if you have your adult with one child, that goes up to more than $20 an hour. But we just started with the ten seventy-five, and we wanted to know, are they paying workers that? And I've been surprised by the resistance that we've gotten from companies that just don't want to say. And these were the largest employers that you were trying to reach out to. Absolutely. You know, I think it's a total of about Mm -hmm. $160,000 employees Mm -hmm. that are covered by these um, employers. So we're talking a large, large percentage of the workforce here in Memphis. Um, And I think it says something if on the anniversary of King's death, they just refuse to even say. And I think it gets back to what um, Dr. De La Vega said that we really have to look at the employers, that it's not a matter of what the workers are doing or failing to do. It's a factor of what the employers are paying. So, Professor, following up on that, I wonder if you could put Memphis in a context across the country. Like, what would be the next city would come close to where Memphis is economically? Because Memphis is low, so I'm trying to figure out how to, so people can say, well, compared to what? Well, we can look at Detroit, And in many ways, we're very similar. The difference in Detroit is that uh, racial disparities are almost non-existent there. Poverty is very high, but is equally high for whites. But in terms of the disparities are much more apparent in the South. And so I conducted a study some time ago And I looked at where the disparities were greater. And I was not surprised to find that essentially every state that had been Confederate state and and cities that, because I looked at cities Mm -hmm. and metropolitan areas that had been Confederate, that had been in the South, tended to have the greater disparities. And and the coast, if we can call it this, the blue states, tended to have a lot closer disparities. This is not to say they didn't exist. I was very surprised to find that in Detroit, they in fact almost didn't exist. But much closer poverty rates between African Americans and whites. And so there is something to be said when you find that disparities are greater in places with much greater history of Jim Crow and discrimination oppression and exclusion. And so I actually ran a mathematical formula where it is significant, whether it is a state with a history of discrimination or a state without a history of discrimination. This is not to say that there was no discrimination in other places, but mathematically, It's significant. Yes, exactly. It's significant. And I note that in your work, you said the child poverty rate in Memphis is really quite dramatically Bad, which I, to me is is always an indicator that there are a lot of things that are not quite right. I want to ask you in, in the global context and in the national context this way. There's a lot more discussion about economics, about economic inequality, at least at some levels. I mean, people know what that means. When the Occupy movement happened a few years ago, the 99% versus the 1%, that made it really clear for a lot of people who may not be economists. 
So I wonder, against the backdrop of a lot of conversation about it, some countries, not necessarily here, moving toward trying to address closing that gap, how do we look at this anniversary and these statistics that you just shared with us? Is it impossible to move, or is there one or two things that could happen? I'm putting aside the racism that you've mentioned, but I'm just saying that just could improve the situation. So, yes, there are countries that are doing an amazingly good job with ending child poverty. And these tend to be the Nordic countries, Sweden and Finland and Norway, places where there are universal supports for working families and where work is the center, Mm. work training. So what we need to do to eliminate poverty is to actually focus on work and wages. 1075 barely keeps a body and soul together, but it does not permit the person to truly participate in the society. For that, we need to have 15 to $18 an hour. That allows the individual to participate fully in the society to then become politically engaged. But that's where it needs to start. We need to start with wages. We also need to focus on funding education. Students are saddled with $100,000 worth of debt, which prohibits them from starting their professional lives by buying a house or participating in the economy fully, uh, starting a business. So that's another very important piece, having the really funding for education. If we say education is important, we know it is, we really need to put our money where our mouth is. We also need to focus on daycare, supporting daycare and supporting maternity leave. Why are there so many poor children? Mm. Because there are poor mothers. If we do not support mothers, we're going to continue having a very high child poverty rate. Now, people say it's marriage. I found that poverty rate for married couples with children had increased three times as fast than for single women. This is, again, a couple of years ago or so. But this shows that we need to support all working parents, and we need daycare, daycare that allows the mother to go to work. And in the Nordic countries, this was one of the reasons for daycare. Good, high-quality daycare is very important Mm -hmm. for education, and childhood education is crucial. But we also have to understand that the function of daycare is to permit the economic participation of mothers. When Head Start's programs start at 9 a.m. and end at 2 or 3 p.m., this requires the mothers to be stay-at-home moms and doesn't permit them to work. That is really crucial. Mm-hmm. They probably So there's show a number of sick. factors that, that we've been talking about and that's that are huge in America, actually. And specifically for Memphis, yes. we need to fund public transportation that is efficient, effective, comprehensive, clean, that people can trust and it's economically affordable for them. Well, I can tell you, Professor, that that's an issue right here in Boston, the public transportation. We have it, but we're we're struggling to maintain it in the way that it should be. 
I want to just stop there because I want to remind people that this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and my guests are Professor Elena De La Vega. You just heard her, Assistant Professor of Social Work at the University of Memphis. And also with me, Wendy Thomas, journalist and creator of the MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism Project. We three are discussing the economic justice in Memphis 50 years after Dr. Martin Luther King's death. Now, uh, Wendy, Dr. De La Vega just pointed out some things that need to happen that aren't happening that have contributed to the economic disparity. One of the stories on your website that I thought was really important, I was struck by this line, it was about businesses getting tax breaks and yet the workers were earning poverty wage jobs. And just as the professor has said, well below the $15 an hour that would bring them to a point where they could have a livable wage. Here's one line. 45 of these new jobs that were created by a hotel project which was subsidized by the city will be paid so little that they will almost qualify for food stamps. Respond to that, if you would. Yeah, I think it's pretty um, striking and I think maybe fair to say unconscionable that taxpayers would be subsidizing these businesses that don't pay workers enough to live on. I mean, these businesses that are getting these tax breaks, they built into their business model low wages. That is the foundation of how they've decided they can make a profit and return that either to the business owners or shareholders or whoever that be. The particular project you were talking about is a hotel project, and it's being done by the um, nephew, actually, of the man who was mayor when Dr. King was killed, that was Henry Loeb. And so his descendants are building this project where most of the workers are going to be um, housekeepers and food service staff. And those are some of the fields where the uh, employment is rising the fastest. So even where you have new jobs being created, they're not jobs that will pay people enough to live on. And I think that in the city where King was killed particularly, I would have hoped we were doing better, but we're not. And I think that it's really a challenge to, you know, the employers and even government officials, elected officials, on what kind of Memphis they want to see. Because unless we do something radically different, we'll be telling the same story in another 50 years. Not me. I won't be here, but someone else will be telling the same story. Well, the professor's pointed out that in some of her other work, You know, other cities are struggling around these issues, but perhaps in some areas not as badly as as Memphis is. Do you get a sense now that a spotlight is on Memphis because of this particular anniversary that folks are talking about these issues, that there is some more vocal public concern about where the city may be 50 years after Dr. King's death? Oh, most definitely. You know, and I, not to toot my own horn, but I horn, but I think that my team's reporting has definitely contributed to steering that public conversation toward jobs and wages. And so people are asking those questions. But I do think city leaders are just looking forward to April 5th when a lot of this attention shifts. And I think that's unfortunate. There are a lot of galas planned and symposiums and talks, but I haven't heard anyone announce a program or initiative to raise wages. Uh, One exception would be the Shelby County School System, which did announce just days ago that they're going to raise the wages of their lowest paid employees to at least $15 an hour. And so that's good news. And that's the kind of policy changes that you need to see to change this, change the situation. So I remind people April 4th was the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated 50 years ago. Here's a clip from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech called The Other America. This was delivered on April 14, 1967 at Stanford University. This is a year before he was killed. I'm to say to people 
that you ought to lift yourself by your own bootstraps. But it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. The fact is that millions of Negroes, as a result of centuries of denial and neglect, have been left bootless. They find themselves impoverished aliens in this affluent society. Does it strike both of you how right now his comments are that he was talking about a situation that we're still in? Professor, does that strike you? It makes me sad. I have been looking at poverty in Memphis in the nation for quite a few years now. So I'm not surprised. I am very saddened because I know that with the right policies, we can eliminate poverty. It is not a problem of not having the resources. It's a problem of distribution. And it's a problem of not recognizing the value and the worth that the workers add to companies or corporations. They are, in fact, the most important piece. Without the worker, there is no profit made, there is no benefit added to society. And yet we think that the workers are not important or they don't deserve to really be sharing in the prosperity that is created. And it's it's not prosperity that is created, it's prosperity that the works create. The, the workers create the prosperity, but they're not sharing in the profit. They just do the work. Now, this is very important. The focus is on Memphis, and the danger is that we say, well, yeah, but that's Memphis, and Memphis is just special, and yes, we do think Memphis is wonderful and special, but this is a nationwide problem. The disparities exist to a lesser or greater extent nationwide, and it's important to remember that federal policies are very important in creating the poverty, the exclusion, and the disparities we encounter today. Let's not blame Memphis, perhaps. Let's think that Memphis is emblematic of a national situation that needs to be corrected on a national level. Mm. Wendy Thomas, your focus is economic justice. I wonder how you define that after working on this project for a year And I also wonder if in all of the stories that you've covered on your website, MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism, have there been certain themes that have emerged? I think defining economic justice for me means workers are making enough to survive and also to thrive. So it's not just being able to pay your rent, but being able to afford to buy a home and being able to save something for your retirement and for your children's education being able to have, you know, some sort of emergency fund because everyone has an emergency at some point in your life. And so that would be justice. Um, When the median household income of blacks in the area is equal to that of whites in the area, I think you will have gotten the kind of economic justice that Dr. King would have wanted. I think one of some of the themes that have kind of emerged from our reporting is that you do have some smaller companies and nonprofits that have made that commitment to pay their workers enough to live on. And so that's encouraging, and perhaps they can set an example for larger corporations. And I think another important thing to consider is when you're trying to solve a problem, 
it's um, important not just to look at the people who suffer from it, but the people who profit from it. That gets at some of your larger corporations. You know, Memphis leaders made a decision decades ago to make the city the distribution capital of America. And what that requires is unskilled labor that is willing to work for low wages. And so this was a conscious decision made by people, city fathers, who would never have to work those warehouse jobs, never have to work those distribution jobs, and they knew their children would never have to work those jobs. King called for massive civil disobedience, and the New Poor People's Campaign, led by Reverend Barber, is trying to resurrect that sort of energy. I believe if King were alive, he would be calling for boycotts, and he would be, again, marching in the streets. And it'll be interesting to see if that kind of energy mobilizes here in Memphis. But, you know, it's hard to protest if you're working two jobs because you're trying to make ends meet. Looking forward, I know you won't be there 50 years from now, but (laughs) if Memphis stays on the trajectory that you have reported about and that uh, the professor has studied, what say you for the next 50 years? Well, we just had news come out that Shelby County's population has dropped for the fifth year in a row. And so I think you'll continue to see that kind of flight from the area. I think the um, business leaders that have bet on low-wage labor will come to regret that. I think as more jobs in distribution, perhaps like the kind you see at, at FedEx, which is the city's largest employer by far, it's headquartered here, as those jobs and more manual labor start to disappear because they've been automated, I think maybe, perhaps... As that happens around the country, you may see the federal government look at some of the proposals King had, which were a guaranteed jobs program or perhaps a minimum basic income. I can't see that with the current political situation federally, but uh, you never know. And I think King was a dreamer, and he believed that things can change. And even as pessimistic as I can be based on the evidence available. I think all of us have to hope that things can improve, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this work. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Wendy Thomas is an award-winning journalist and the creator of MLK 50, Justice Through Journalism. And Elena De La Vega is assistant professor of social work at the University of Memphis. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at facebook.com slash under the radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swaye is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.